This is an oral history interview with Judy Harbaugh for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in the Canal Side Inn in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, uh, near Judy's home. Uh, today is Saturday, March 15th, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. Judy, let's start with your first awareness of there being a Bob Dole in this world. I grew up in Russell, Kansas, and so I knew that there was a Bob Dole in Russell, but I didn't know him personally. I did know his wife, who had been my Brownie Scout leader uh, for a short time, and my parents knew the Doles and Mr. Dole's parents, and so I had heard him mentioned and talked about by many people. Um, I knew he was the county attorney. Um, but as I say, I had never run across him or knew him personally when I was growing up. Do you recall any stories that your parents told about the Dole family? Yes. My father grew up with his mother in Bunker Hill, Kansas. And so he knew all of um, Mr. Dole's mother's side of the family. And he had told me about that. And when Mr. Dole was coming back from um, Michigan, where he had been in the hospital after being wounded, um, to continue his physical therapy, his parents had their garage made into a facility that he could use. And they asked my dad, who was a carpenter, to come in and help set that up, which he did. And he had told me about doing that. Um, the townsfolk in Russell had done an awful lot of things to help out the Dole family and particularly around the time when he was coming home. And I can remember my parents telling me about those things. Right. Now, you got to know the other members of the family, uh, did you not? Yes, I did. Give me just a little thumbnail sketch of his parents and his siblings. Um. His parents were wonderful people. I just adored them. Um, his father um, was a man of few words, but when he spoke, everybody listened. And he had so many words of wisdom that he gave all the time. Um, and as Mr. Delahoy says, my dad got up every morning and went to work in his overalls or coveralls, and my dad did too <clears throat> as a carpenter. Um, and um, I can remember going into the creamery where his, where his father was and um, telling him something Mr. Dole wanted me to tell him or whatever. Um, and when we would go back to Russell, when I was working for him, we would work at his parents' home um, <clears throat> in one of the rooms, and they'd set it up so that he could dictate 
letters and speeches to me. Um, and Mrs. Dole was a wonderful cook, and she always had all kinds of treats, things to eat, um, and also had very good meals that I was invited to many times. Um, his siblings, Kenny, um, his brother, I knew quite well because when we were in Russell and we would go to, say, outlying towns, Kenny usually was the one who drove us. Um, and I got to know him. He had a fantastic sense of humor. Um, not as quick-witted as Senator Dole's, but um, he still had it, and he looked at life in that way. Um, always the optimist. Um, his sisters, um, Gloria, who lived in Colorado at the time, I didn't really know her personally, until later, um, but Norma Jean um, lived near Wichita with her family, and I saw her several times because my parents were living in Wichita by that time. They moved there just as I started college at K-State, and so I saw Norma Jean more often than Gloria. And then when various campaigns on election nights and so forth, they would be there, and I got to know them that way, and some of their children. Um, one of Gloria's sons came out and did a lot of advance work, putting up signs and things for the first Senate campaign. So I got to know him. Um, where where do you think Kenny and his brother got their sense of humor? Because it doesn't sound like his You father. know, I think my own assessment of that would be that um, when Mr. Dole worked in Dawson's drugstore, the Dawson brothers were all really humorous, quick-witted, uh, they loved people, and they always had something funny to say to everyone. Everybody in the town knew everybody else. So, um, And Mr. Dole had worked there, I guess, as a soda jerk um, when he was younger and got to know them very well. And I think he picked a lot of that up from them. You know, it, I can't see it coming directly from his father or his mother. But I know that um, the Dawson brothers were very good friends of his, and uh, I think it probably some of it came from there. And he also may have had friends that I'm not aware of who, you know, were an influence. Another distinctive quality of Senator Dole is his voice, that deep, that deep voice, wonderful, yes, compelling voice. Uh, did he share that with Kenny and his father? No. His father had a quiet voice, and Kenny didn't have that deep, resonant voice that the senator has. Um, so again, I don't know where that might have come from. It's probably nature. Yeah, right. Could be. <laughs> um 
you told me just before we started that you had, were an English teacher in Russell. Is that no, right? No, not in Russell. Um, after I graduated, I moved to Kansas City, and I taught in Shawnee Mission, Kansas, in junior high, and I, seventh graders, and I taught English, geography, civics, um, and history. Um, well, one, one, yeah, go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say, during that time, um, I really, what I really wanted to do and had wanted to do since I was in high school was go back to Washington, D.C. and work. Um, I don't really know where that came from, except I was always interested in current issues and um, what was going on in the world. Um, and I got that from some teachers who I had. And so when I was teaching, I used to talk about, I really want to go back to Washington and work. And I think I want to go work on Capitol Hill. And so one of the teachers said, well, why don't you write to your congressman and ask him how to go about doing that? Because I didn't have the slightest idea. And I knew that my congressman was Bob Dole. And so I did write him a letter. Um, and he sent me back um, a letter with um, questions to fill out and send in to him, and then he wrote me again and said, would I um, be interested in interviewing with the lady who ran his congressional office in Hutchinson over Easter time, and I said I'd be glad to do that. So she actually drove to Wichita and interviewed me. Um, it was the Easter of... 1965, and um, I guess it must have been early May, um, the congressman, as he was at that time, uh, called me in Kansas City and said he thought I probably was going to have to sign a teacher's contract soon, and he wanted to offer me a job before I had to face that. And the truth of the matter is, that time had already come and gone uh, by the time he called me, and I had not signed my contract again, just hoping that I got the job, which was pretty risky. And I don't think I ever told him that, but um, that's how it happened. That's great. That's great. Um, just before we move on to Washington, a couple of other questions. Um, as a college-educated person with all these subjects at your command, um, did the Dole family strike you as being um, particularly literate or bookish or anything like that or, or not? Well, they certainly were literate and they read. Um, not college-educated, but um, aware of what was going on. Uh, 
and certainly over dinner and what have you could carry on conversations and would ask um, very interesting questions, um, things they were curious about. Um, and I think a lot of that maybe was due to the senator who, of course, had gone through college and law school and um, he had a great interest in it and maybe a lot of that was due to him. Going back before that time to when you were growing up in Russell, I'd be curious to know what you think of sort of the scope that people had at, at that time. Were they in Russell, Kansas, aware of either through church uh, or schooling and whatnot, the outside world, or was it fairly insular and Kansas-based? I think I would have to say that it was more Kansas-based, fairly insular. Um, the town at the time when I grew up was about 6,500 people. Um, everybody knew everybody, but everything, for instance, that I did in my own world there had to do with school and church. Um, and very few of us traveled outside of Kansas even. You know, it was a big treat to go to Salina or to go to Hayes or um, to go anywhere else in Kansas. It, I mean, you just didn't talk that much about going, like Kansas City seemed like miles and miles away, and I had never been there or to Wichita by the time I went to college, just smaller towns around. So going from Kansas to Washington was a big jump. A big jump for me. Um, and I had no idea what to expect uh, in terms of how people dressed, what was different about it, was it a lot more formal, um, what opportunities there were. I just had no knowledge of that. So. Now, you were a very excited person because not only were you getting to Capitol Hill, but you were getting to Capitol Hill with your local congressman. Yes. Yes. So how did you travel to Washington? Was that by air or by train? No. My mother and I drove. Um, we took um, about 10 days to go back to Washington from Wichita. And um, we stopped at a lot of places along the way that we thought would be interesting. Like we went to the Notre Dame campus and went all through that one day. Another day we stopped in Springfield, Illinois, to go through the Lincoln home and um, museum there. Um, we went over the bridge that opened in St. Louis. It was fairly new and... Um, we sort of set out, you know, so that we would hit some highlights along the way. And then when we got to Washington, we still laugh about it. Um, the first thing we wanted to see was the White House. And the only thing I knew about it, or that either of us did, was that every time we saw it in a picture, it looked like it was off on a huge tract of land, totally separate from anything else. And so we're going down Pennsylvania Avenue, and 
we don't see it. I mean, it's buildings everywhere and no White House. And so we went back around, and about the third time, I looked over and I said, Mother, that looks like the White House, but it's just right near the sidewalk. And she said, you're right. (laughs) And that's how we discovered it was the White House, and we're just so stunned that it was really right along with everything else and not isolated. Was this your mother's first venture pretty much outside of Kansas, or had she been a, a better, a more traveled than you? Um, the only other place we had gone was to South Dakota, where I had an aunt and uncle um, who had a big ranch. And my dad used to go there every summer or every other summer um, and buy lumber um, for his carpentry. And... So that's the only other place we had been. And and we always took that as a family vacation. So this was an adventure for your mother. This was a real adventure for my mother. And um, and she flew back to Kansas, and I stayed. It was my car, so she flew back. And it was her first time to fly. So that was another first for her. Right. So where where did you live? And then uh, what about going to, to work your first day? Well, the first person that I lived with was uh, Virginia Baxter, who also had been in my class in Russell High, a friend of mine. And she was back there working for the Brookings Institute and had an apartment. And I had been in correspondence with her before I went. And she had said, come stay at my place until you find somewhere. And she lived in upper northwest Washington, close to the zoo. And um, so I stayed with her for about a month. And then I found um, or met some people who lived in Georgetown who were looking for a roommate. And I moved to a house with four other girls in Georgetown. And was there over oh, about five years before I moved out into Virginia. So what was your first day at work like? Um, well, I didn't know how many people there would be or anything. Um, while my mother was there, the Mr. Dole had taken us to lunch in the Capitol, and I had just vaguely seen the office. You know, I didn't really get a a tour or meet the people. And so when I went that morning, I took the bus um, and went into the office and met everybody. And it was a small office. There weren't very many people working there. Um, And they gave me a desk. It was behind. They had up some screens, like wooden screens, and there were two of us behind them. And I was given one of those desks, um, and my job was to type letters all day long uh, from dictabelts that he had dictated. Um, His office was directly across the hall, from 
the other three rooms that we had on the other side. And he would bring the dicta belts over with the letters that went with them and put them on our desks each night. And that's what I did all day long. Um, and then um, I'm trying to think. I had gone to work in June little after the middle of June of 65 and I had an uncle who was a very good friend of Mr. Dole's and he was dying of cancer and Mr. Dole had said to me Judy I think you ought to go home see your uncle and then come back Um, and I did that Um, and when I got back my desk had been moved it was I was told by Bill Katz, the administrative assistant, that I was now sitting at the desk in front of those screens. And I said, have I done something wrong? Why have I been moved? Has my job changed? And he said, well, you're going to be Mr. Dole's personal secretary, and he wants you to sit right here. So that was a big shock, but uh, a pleasant one. And um, but he still was dictating dictabelts, and I hated those things. Just hated them because you had to just rough them out to begin with. Because he changed them so often, he'd say, "Oh, go back to where I said such and such, and insert this or whatever." So you'd rough them off as fast as you could, and and then type the letters, and. So one day, not too long after that, one of the committee people came in and said that he needed to deliver a speech on the floor and that he was there to help him write the uh, remarks and that Mr. Dole said he'd have to dictate them on the dicta belt and he said, we won't have time for that. And I said, well, I take shorthand let me go across the hall and have him just dictate it to me, and then I can. And Mr. Dole had never done that before. He didn't know anything about shorthand. And so he said, well, I don't know how to do that. And I said, well, it's easy. Just play like I'm the dictaphone and and just start dictating, and I'll take it down, and then I'll go transcribe it. And he said, well, okay, I'll try it. So he started talking, and then when he changed his mind, you know, I. So the shorthand was much faster, and I went over and I whipped that out on the typewriter, and he went to the floor and gave the remarks. And after that, uh, everything was done in shorthand. <laughs> it was the end to the horrible dictabelts. <laughs> so that's one of the fun fun stories I like. Yeah, that, that's that's very good. Um, so how many people total were there about in his office in 65? About seven. Mm-hmm. And do you recall which building you were in? On the house yes, side? we were in the Cannon House Office building on the main floor, first floor. And as you walked in from um, Independence Avenue, um, we were like, I think the first office on the left, first or second. Mm-hmm. 
And as I understand it, his office was on one side of the corridor, and then these other and offices we, were maybe in the inner circle. They the were inner right corridor. across on the other side. Um, he was on one side of the hallway, and there were three offices on the other side. Later, he moved, an office became available, and he moved over into the same suite of offices as we were in. And so he was in there. Which was more efficient. On our side. It was much more efficient then. So um, what was your role then as the personal secretary? What were your duties then? Well, I did all of his personal correspondence to anybody. Um, and I was the one he usually would call in to um, relay any messages or orders or whatever to the rest of the staff. Um, and I also related to his wife, Phyllis, and his daughter, Robin. Um, and messages or anything that needed done, I would, I would handle for it for him with them um, during the day. Um, what were your office hours like at that, in the house? They were very long, as they continued to be the whole time I worked for him. Um, we started work at 8 in the morning, and we had like a half hour for lunch. Um, and then, as long as they were in session... Um, I had to be there. Not everybody did. A lot of people left at five. Um, but Bill Katz, who was the administrative assistant then, and I, if they were in session, we were there. So there were a lot of late nights. And it just boils down to the fact that uh, you never really knew what time you were going to get to go home. So your private life, personal life, was uh, always it was a always tentative. it was very hard to plan because you didn't know if you could carry through with it or not. Mm -hmm. So did you resent that, or did no, you just learn to live with it? Not at all. Um, my job was exciting and fun, and um, and so no, I didn't. Um, and when I first went to work for him. I didn't have to work a lot of weekends, um, the whole weekend, maybe a Saturday morning, but then I'd have Saturday afternoon and Sundays free when I was on the house side. What were Senator Dole's priorities during that period in the house? Do you mean as far as his job or what he expected of the staff? or? Well, both actually. Well, of course, his main priority was the Agriculture Committee. Um, and he worked very closely on that, um, spent a lot of time on it. And the people who were on that committee were the ones I got to know the best. Hyde Murray, for instance, was um, very close to the congressman and worked with him on legislation and remarks and that kind of thing, putting bills together. 
Um, but he was always interested in, you know, any legislation that came along. Um, and, and it always surprised me how he knew so much about whatever bill was up. And I, I finally realized that there was a lot of discussion, interaction in the cloakrooms that went on with those who were on committees that he was not, but who were dealing with the other issues that they would be voting on. And he was a very quick learner and, you know, could make up his mind that way. But they would get together and talk. He would talk with other members who were on the committees that handled those things. Among the seven staff, or approximately seven, mm -hmm. you say, uh, there were some people who had expertise in certain fields. I imagine there was someone in agriculture on his staff, or am I wrong about that? No, not at that time. He depended totally on the agriculture committee staff. Um, there was a receptionist who answered the phone, took care of all the guests that came in, and that there were a lot of them, and... Then Bill Katz, the administrative assistant, who sort of oversaw the whole office. Um, there were, I guess, three people who answered the mail, which means they were dealing with letters that came in about issues. Um, and Mr. Dole pretty much would uh, dictate those. Now, if there was something that there were hundreds and hundreds of people writing in about some bill, he we had standard letters that could be sent for I'm in favor of or I'm not in favor of and here's why, you know. And so there were those kinds of letters. Um, there was a file clerk who still works for him, Ruth Ann Comark. Um, and she came to work in September after I went to work in June. So we became very good friends. And um, I still see her today when I go back. Um, and that is pretty much it. We did a newsletter, but we all worked on that. And back in those days, we didn't have... Um, even a Selectric typewriter hadn't come along yet. And so we had those electric typewriters where you threw the, the carriage. and um, We were not allowed to use whiteout and have any mistakes in a letter. That was one of the things that he insisted on. Um, and so you had to be a, a good typist. Um, I remember people took typing tests when they were being hired. Um, Did you have a typing test? No. I didn't. But he he just expected that everybody would, you know, do the right thing, and we did. I, I When I think back to... You know, instead of copy machines, we had the mimeograph. 
the blue thing that went around the cylinder and that horrible ink and to put out press releases and newsletters and what have you. Um, and technology's come a long way. Indeed. Yeah, I was thinking about that with his wanting to insert things in a letter and push today with a computer. You know, that's It'd no be easy, yeah. Exactly. But it wasn't that easy then. What about turnover in his office uh, in the house? Was there a lot of that? Um, no, not so much in the house. No. And how would you characterize the relationship between the senator and Katz? Was that... Oh, that was a good relationship. Um, Bill had um, been around the Hill for a long time, worked for a Kansas senator, and and then um, came with Mr. Dillon. And he was just a very low-key, wonderful man. Um, didn't have a temper, not much, you know, got him more, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> not much would get him riled up. Um, and he would just handle things. And if he didn't happen to see something that was going on, you know, I always felt free and that I could go and talk to him and say, I really think something needs to be done about this or that. And, and he'd, he'd handle it. So... Some people have made the comment that uh, Senator Dole had the tendency to micromanage a good deal. Uh, did Bill Katz have felt like he was sort of overpowered by the by the congressman, or was that they sort of had their own roles and and he had enough um, authority to be able to operate on his own? The latter, I think, in the House particularly, he operated more on his own. Um, and he knew what the congressman expected, and they talked back and forth. And so um, I think in the House, Bill's role was a pretty comfortable one for him. Um, what about mentors? Did you sense that uh, Senator, Congressman Dole was really looking up to and particularly impressed by other members of the House? Yes, he was particularly impressed by Jerry Ford um, and often sought his counsel on things. Um, and he, of course, became the minority leader during that time. Um, and then right on the other side of our office, uh, Don Rumsfeld had his office. And those two were very close and talked over the issues and bills and things a lot. And Mr. Rumsfeld was another one who worked very, very long hours and worked his staff hard. And so we all became very close, the two offices. Um, that, and that was another person that he really... And then the other Kansas congressional members, um, they used to meet and talk over all these things. Um, and did that sometimes I, include the Kansas senators as well? Um, I can't remember that the meetings included the senators, but I know that Mr. Dole relied a lot on 
Senator Carlson, Frank Carlson, and that he spoke with him a lot about various things. Yes, get his advice. He also looked up very much to Everett Dirksen um, and spoke to him a lot. He, he often talked about him in the office. And in what context or, or what, what were his remarks? Or something that maybe um, Senator Dirksen had said on the floor um, or that Mr. Dole had called him and talked with him about an issue and where he thought it was going in the Senate and where it was in the House. Um, but again, just for some advice and the lay of the land, so to speak. I seem to recall that uh, Senate, uh, Congressman Dahl was um, elected as the leader of the freshman class when he came into the House in in. Uh, in 60. And of course this would have been before your time. But did you get a sense in 65 that you were working with a member of the House who was a real comer? Yes, that I did. I don't know about his being the leader of in 60, the leader of that class. I just don't know that. Um, there were a group of conservative congressmen who met I forget the day, which doesn't matter, but at the end of the day, they would get together and they were the, called the Acorns. And um, it was conservative members. And I remember when George Bush came to Congress, George Bush 43, um, no, 41. I mean 41, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, he became a member of that group and they took turns, the members, having it in their offices. Them, And we served hors d'oeuvres and soft drinks, coffee, when it was our turn. Um, no acorns. No acorns. I don't know to this day where they got that name. Um, but anyway, they met and talked over... Um, how they would approach legislation and what they felt needed to be done or brought up. Or, mm -hmm. And how large a group would you just generally estimate that to be? Ten? No, I think altogether it might have been 20 to 25 members. And of course they were not only uh, a, a small portion of the Republican delegation, but the Republicans were also in the minority during this whole period of time. That's they? right. They were. Mm -hmm. Did you get a sense that there was another group uh, or an, another substantial number of members of the House uh, in the Republican caucus who were to the right of them, or was this pretty much the right This way? was pretty much the conservative right at that time. There really wasn't a far-right evangelical wing or whatever. That came on later. And I don't recall that even of being mentioned back at that time. There were those who were more conservative, but that was the extent of it, not a far-right group. 
Um, when did you get an inclination that uh, he was thinking of running for the Senate? Well, I think I always, once I'd been there a while, I think I began to think that he probably, if an opening occurred, would run for the Senate. Not because he said anything, but I just felt like he had an interest in moving up. And I remember the day he told me that Senator Carlson had called him and told him he was going to retire um, and wanted to let him know first so that he could get out in front and and announce. And so that that remains vividly in my memory. Um, and he started working on that right away in thinking about organizing the state and how he would run a campaign. And, and do you... Do you recall, was that in 67, or was that in the spring of 68, do you imagine? I'm not positive. I can't remember. if I th It might have been early 68. Or it could have been late 67. I just can't remember right now. Right. Um, were you typically uh, a person that he would come to right away with, with news? And, yes. And w so you were kind of a confidant. Yes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And there were several times when we, like every Kansas day, January the 29th, we always went out for that because that was politicking being done there with the home folks. And people from all over the state came to that. Um, and we... I always went along with that, for that, and Mrs. Dole, too. Um, and then there would be, like, when they'd have um, a recess over a holiday period or whatever, we usually would go back out to Kansas and go around to several of the counties in the first district that he represented. Um and there were times I would go out there and work um, with the lady in, who ran the office in Hutchinson. And then there was another woman who ran an office in Great Bend, um, Mrs. Minor. And I stayed with them at times. Um, so I was back and forth, depending what he, what he was doing. In, in those days, uh, was there any reason why a staff person uh, was restricted from being active in a re-election campaign? And there were sort of campaigns and staff meant to be separate, or did they blend together? Well, when I went out there during, not for the election, but if I went out during a recess, um, I don't recall any restrictions being put on, but I couldn't go work on a campaign without going off the payroll. And so when I moved out there in May of um, 68 to work on the Senate campaign, <clears throat> I did have to go off the congressional payroll during that time. Um, and then clear through to the election. 
and and then I guess it was in December I went back on the payroll. So during that period, uh, conversely, you weren't doing any Capitol Hill business. No, I wasn't. Um, before we get to the '68 campaign, I'm curious to know what your role was in the '66 re-election to the House campaign. Um, oh, again, I was out in the district. Um, I stayed with. Uh, I was in the Hutchinson. Stayed with uh, Mrs. Frick in Hutchinson, and. A lot of times we took Mr. Dole to the events as he was campaigning or whatever. Um, and I don't know if through this process, Brian, you've heard of Bill Frazier. Bill Frazier was from Russell um, and was very close to the senator. He was a little bit younger than I, but he would always take a leave of absence from whatever he was doing, and he drove the senator and went with him as his aide everywhere he went. Um, and he died many years ago, but um, back in those days, he was very close to Mr. Dole, and whenever he was needed, he, he was there. So. What words would you use to describe Bob Dole at that stage in his career, say in, in 66, as a, as a congressman? Very conscientious. He was ambitious. Um, he was a wonderful speaker, and in going to banquets or luncheons or whatever, rallies, whatever, um, he could really win people over. Um, he was a great campaigner. He never ran out of um, steam, and he had a great knack of remembering everybody's name, and I I always admired that. That I can remember sitting in restaurants, and he'd say, "Judy, who is that over in that booth? I know I need to. I know I have to know them. I know them, and I need to speak to them when they come by." And Sometimes I knew, and just as often I didn't. But by the time they came by the booth or the table, he'd remembered the name, and he could say, Hi, John and Mary, how are you? You know, whatever. And he always knew people's names. And I asked him one time how he did that, and he said he tried to find some association in his own mind that would re remember, you know, that he could trigger the memory of who they were and where they were from. And even to the point of where he could ask, you know, how, how the kids were. And, but he just was great at doing that. And I thought that was such an admirable quality. It, it, as a person who has great difficulty remembering people's names, I marvel at that talent. Yeah. And I've often heard about that dissociative way of, of mm -hmm. dealing with it. Did he give you an example? No, he didn't. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> right. Um, well, let's talk about the 68 campaign then, because um, you were out there for that. And uh, was it hardball? And 
How did it go? I moved out to Topeka, the state capital, in May of 68. And one of the younger um, interns we had moved out there, too, to help. Um, and she and I got a tiny little apartment um, where we stayed through the campaign. Um, we were in a very small store front, so to speak, um, on the main street of Topeka. And so we had our banners and things in the window, and that was headquarters. But we had a volunteer um, who answered the phone and, and handled people who would walk in off the street. Um, Lou Kenny was her name. And then in the back, um, Bob Miner and I um, were there putting together where he would travel and speak and, you know, just the um, logistics of a campaign. Um, we had four or five college kids, all, all boys, who wanted to work on the campaign. And they came and they would, they would take signs and they would go out all over the state and put those around and so forth. Um, and then come back and get more. And, you know, they ran a lot of errands and did a lot of things for us. But as far as, you know, a big staff, we just had the two of us. Um, we did have a, a consultant. Mr. Dole had hired uh, Roy Fouch, um, who had run a lot of campaigns. And he wasn't there much. He, he came out a few times. Um, but basically, Mr. Dole would talk with him over the phone on the strategy and that type of thing. Um, Was he based in Topeka, Fouch? No. He was from St. Louis. He was a reverend. Um, now lives in Washington. Um, what about but that was the extent of the campaign. We were running against Bill Avery, and uh, Mr. Dole um, beat him. I remember we, they had one debate... And we were all worried about that, you know, how the debate would go. But it went very well. Mr. Dole really did well. Um, and we, he paid attention to polls much more than I did. I always felt like polls were behind where people were at the time they came out. And I remember one day I was at the beauty shop and had my hair all in rollers and what have you. I think it was a Saturday. It was. And they called the, the beauty shop from the campaign and said, the senator or the, the congressman's on the line and wants to talk to you immediately. Come back here. So I went back. I ran back to the headquarters and called him. And he had just gotten some results from a poll that showed he was... I forget how many, but a lot of points behind. 
And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. What am I going to do? And I said, well, let me think a minute. And so then I can't tell you exactly what the things were, but I was able to say to him, since that poll was taken, these four or five things have happened. And I know the poll hasn't caught up to the good things that have happened since it was taken. So I don't think you should take it that seriously. And I don't think you should dwell that much on polls. I just don't think they're worth that much. That's really before campaigns grew large and had their own inside polling and tracking overnights and all that. We didn't have that back then. So, um, but I felt that the poll really wasn't up with the way the trend was going for him, which proved to be the case. Um, And I think that's just the way it was back in those days. What about county-by-county organization? Did you have people planted all around the state? Every county. Every county had a chairman and a co-chairman who I called on to set up events. Or they would call in to me and tell me, we have a big fair or we have a big whatever. Um, And we, you know, there were a lot of invitations. And there was a lot of contact with the chairman in each of those counties. Who set up that system? We did it back in Washington before we ever um, went to Kansas. Uh, We just went one district at a time. He got on the phone. He had help in the count in the districts where he, you know, the other four districts um, where he didn't really know the people that well, but he. He had college friends or knew of somebody, you know, who could help him. Um, And so, like, in the first district, which he had, um, we did that one first. And and he he personally called every chairman and co-chairman to see if they would do it, which I felt was very important and had advised him to do that. And I said, why don't we just sit down every evening and say you call 10 people? And so that's the way we did that. And then we'd do a press release and announcing all of those names in one district. And he'd go out that weekend and he would, you know, that would be the press release and and he would have a schedule. And then we did the second district and each of the other districts in the same way. How did he divide his time between responsibilities in Washington and getting out on the campaign trail? Well, he refused to miss votes as much as possible. And he did that. I mean, he, di- he didn't miss votes. Um, And so it was difficult, you know, but most of the campaigning had to be done on weekends. Sometimes there would be a recess, and he could come out for more days. And there were, and then they finally, Congress finally adjourned because everybody was running. And so that allowed him, you know, longer time to. 
just move as, around. Just as a footnote here for people later in life, uh, were, were you flying jets by that time, or was it still prop uh, planes, do you imagine? And about how long you mean would flying it... around Kansas to oh, campaign? No, 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 I was thinking from Washington to Kansas, how long that flight took. Oh, no, it was commercial flights. I know it was commercial flights. So I was wondering whether it was jets, two and a half hours, or whether it was prop planes that were f four hours to get to Kansas City or wherever you would fly in. Well, that's okay. It's well, definitely. it was a commercial flight, but I don't recall. It seems to me it was about three-hour flight. Right, right. Um, so you were with the senator uh, on the night of of the election and with the results and all? Yes. What was that like? Yes. Oh, that was really exciting. Um, we had the um, election night in the hotel, the Jayhawk Hotel in Topeka, and all kind, almost all of the chairman and co-chairmen for the campaign were there. It was just jam-packed with people. And when it was announced that he was the winner, um, he and his wife and Robin uh, went down to the ballroom and he spoke. Um, and we were, I was trying to think, we were staying there that night because the Republican convention in Florida had already started. And we were going that next morning to fly down there because Mr. Dole was the speaker at the convention, no matter what. <laughs> I mean, he'd been asked to be. And um, so we left that next morning, and we didn't know yet if Nixon had won or not. Or we didn't know when we went to bed if Nixon had won. Um, we found out the next morning, and we went to the convention, and... Mr. Dole, of course, being there as a, you know, the the Senate nominee from Kansas, and that was really exciting. And there were a lot of things geared around him and others who had were nominees, you know. Um, and that was our first um, conv Republican convention that we had been to. And you say Dole was on the program. Mm -hmm. He spoke. Mm -hmm. So then, what was the general election like? Was that uh, from the convention time until November? Um, again, it was just more traveling around and, you know, cementing friendships and getting to know people better, you know, who you could call on and what have you. Um, particularly in the districts that he did not represent. What, did he had an easier time. I think his opponent then was William Robinson. He ran against in 68. That's what my notes say yes. here. Uh, he, so he had an easier time beating Mr. Robinson than he did Bill Avery. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because Bill Avery had been in politics in Kansas for many years. Right, right. So um, so then you all went back to your housework for a couple of months, I guess, or whatever, uh, probably maybe not. We, um, we went back and 
had to, of course, pack everything up and in anticipation of moving to the Senate. And uh, we had to finish up. I mean, the work went on, but we also were packing things up. And right, right. Let's take a moment pause here. Tell me then about setting up shop in, in the, on the other side of the hill. Okay, we moved over to the Senate in early January, and you got your office, as I recall, by um, you drew for what number you were to choose what was available. And we were fortunate enough, and again, I don't remember how, but we were able to keep Senator Carlson's office. And so we we stayed in the office he had. And his receptionist, Senator Carlson's, was a wonderful woman who knew everybody. She'd been with him for so long. And we knew her. Um, but she stayed on as the receptionist for the senator. And was just... She was just great. And then the staff had to expand because he was on more committees. And now you really had to have people who knew issues quite well. And so people were brought onto the staff. It grew a lot. And we had those people who were assigned different departments to handle the mail as it came in that way. And they handled the issues for their different fields. Um, the press and speech area grew. Maybe three more people there. There were more secretaries who typed, answered letters because we had so many more, you know, not a district, but a state now. And I'm trying to think. We must have had 25 to 30 people on the staff at that point. When we first went, and he was sworn in, the day he was sworn in, um... We had a big party in the office, and a lot of people from Kansas who had become close to him uh, had flown back for that. And all afternoon, after the swearing-in, we served food and, and drinks and, and just had a great time visiting with everyone and sort of celebrating the whole thing. Um, And then Bill Katz was still the administrative assistant. And um, his role became less because Mr. Dole related more to people on whatever the issue might be. Um, he, he needed to talk to the people who were handling things 
more than he did on the house side. And so there was a lot more interaction there. And the work hours were longer and longer. Again, always I had to be there as long as they were in session. Um, some people left once they'd finished their jobs and so on. Others stayed and, and worked later. But it was long hours, and we worked, <clears throat> pardon me, we worked every Saturday morning. Um, and the senator would stop and pick up donuts and bring a huge box of them in every Saturday morning. And we had the coffee made, and so uh, that was his treat and his habit every Saturday Sometimes we worked on Sunday if he had a speech he was doing and we hadn't gotten around to really getting it finished. We'd work on Sundays after church. Um, he never missed church. And so we'd work in the afternoons. Um, and some holidays we worked. One of the things that happened since Nixon was new in the White House there were a lot of patronage jobs open. And the people from Kansas who wanted those jobs wrote everybody in the delegation. And it got to be, you know, it was just too much. Um, and so the senator, they all, the, all, the whole Kansas delegation got together, and Mr. Dole offered to handle all the patronage mail. And that meant I got to do all the patronage mail. Um, and so I can remember working holidays and Super Bowl Day. Super Bowl Day was interesting because the Doles had the whole staff, Senate staff, out for dinner and to watch the Super Bowl. And so I worked all day and then went out when it was time for the Super Bowl to start. But I was answering those patronage letters. They were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. So um, that was one of the things I recall vividly. Just on that point, uh, the other Kansas senator at that point was Senator Pearson? Yes, Jim Pearson. So was he also receiving a lot of these patronage letters? Yes. Did you work together, his office and yours, on that, do you think? Um, yes. Well, the Kansas delegation, you know, on people who wanted to be in various departments or whatever job it might be, the delegation got together and decided, you know, who they wanted to recommend um, and sometimes it would, they'd recommend one person or sometimes more, you know, maybe three, whatever. But they met on that to make the decision. And it wasn't say, a dull decision. And you say the delegation, that was both House and Senate yes. uh, Republicans. Yes. I, I just want to, this is another footnote here, but it, it just occurred to me when you were talking about the Kansas delegation meeting together in the House... Did that mean that Congressman Dole and Congressman Dr. Bill Roy 
met occasionally from time to time? Or do you have any recollection of any interaction between the two of them? No, I don't. Because remember, they, they came head to head in 1974 after you left. I was gone. Right, right, I know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so patronage was, a, was an issue right, right at the start. Yeah, it was a big, that was a right. big thing. Did you ever have any doubt that you would be, just carry over to the other, uh, to the Senate office as his personal secretary? No, or? because he told me that right away. Um, and, I mean, that was an immediate decision and that he told me about, and um, I'm trying to think. He, a couple of the people who had worked for us in the House retired and didn't go over with us, but everybody else who was working for him did go in the beginning. And um, there are a lot of people, of course, who came in to apply for jobs, as is the case, you know, anytime you have a new. So it took a while to really get things staffed up, but he particularly wanted Kansans if he could get them. And we had a, by and large, the staff were all from Kansas. And then there were a few who were not, but were recommended highly by somebody else, one of his colleagues or whatever. So it was a mix, but It was a mix, but predominantly Kansas. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you recall anything about his initial um, committee assignments, and was he disappointed with that, or any, any issues there? Agriculture is the only one I can remember he was on. I'm trying to think what else. He was on a select committee. He, well, he was, well, yeah, it was agriculture and then public works and small business and nutrition and whatnot, but not... But his main interest was agriculture, and he always asked for that one. You know, he didn't want to get off that committee. And... Was he also uh, asking for finance, or was that something that, that developed came later? later. Mm-hmm. So agriculture was his main thing, and he got yes, it. Yes, and he got it. Mm-hmm. So did you see any changes in him? Has he moved from being a House member to being now the senator, the junior senator from Kansas? Not really. Um, he had a lot more people to deal with. Um, but he also delegated a lot of responsibility um, for just everyday things that went on in the office. He delegated that to me, um, some more to Bill Katz. Um, and those who were working on doing the mail um, with issues and that kind of thing, um, they knew what to do. I mean, and if they ran into a problem, you know, they could always, you could go in and um, see him and, and ask him. Um, he gave a lot more speeches. He was in much more demand as a new up-and-coming senator 
around the country. And so we began getting all kinds of invitations from all over. Um, how, how do you account for that? You mean why he got them? Well, there was a, a TV show on all the new senators um, in that class. And they dwelt on each one and showed, you know, where they had come from, what they had been doing, and what have you. Um, but Mr. Dole became um, pretty popular because he was he was well liked on in the Senate um, and on the floor for his diligence there. Um, he was a good senator. I mean, he just he was always there. So many times you'd go to the Senate and be disappointed because you'd maybe see four senators down there and somebody up there talking like they were speaking to hundreds, um, which was always a disappointment to see for me. Um, but he took, you know, his responsibility um, seriously. And as he began to speak, in fact, the White House often, when they would get an invitation, sometimes they would call um, whoever the organization was, whatever, and say that the president couldn't come, but would they like to have Senator Dole or, you know, and so some of them came through that way. Um, and he was on TV. He was, he he used to do different programs. They would call him and ask him to do them, and and he would do them. And sometimes it would be with a Democrat senator, uh, whatever. But he just became more widely known across the country than he had been, you know, as a congressman. And that started pretty much in 69 and just grew. Right. Mm -hmm. Did he ever in the first early days, January, February, March of, of 69, ever call you in the office and say, boy, Judy, this is, this is overwhelming. This is more than I thought it was going to be. Or he never had panic moments or anything no, like that. No, he never did that. No. Um, How? Go ahead. I was just going to say, um, our mail in the Senate that had to go out every day, the number of letters that went out, I don't, I can't say for sure, but at least quadrupled, maybe much more than that even. Um, and he signed every one of them. And so all the mail came to my desk to look over read it through and see if there were mistakes or whatever. And then I'd take this huge stack in and he'd sign it every night. And w with his disability, um, you know, I'd put my hand on a letter and he'd sign it and I'd put it to the side and, because he didn't like help unless he asked for it. You never did for him unless he asked you to. He liked to. He He often said to me, I try to do something new every day that I haven't done before. And 
I, I read about that um, in, in the Frontline interview of yours. You mentioned that. Did I? Uh-huh. And I wondered, what kind of things were you, were you thinking of there? Um, well, for instance, putting in cufflinks. Um, if he had to get dressed into a tuxedo, he wanted to do that himself without help. Um, if he were even changing suits to go to something in the evening, um, you know, with a fresh shirt and tie and all, rather than have one of the men help him, he wanted to try to do that himself and put the tie on and all. Um, tying shoelaces. Um, and I remember he went to wearing, um, Just slip-on shoes, you know. Um, but not always. Um, but it was those kinds of things he was, was talking about. It was those kinds of things, uh-huh. Or even like picking something big up, picking up something that was large, whatever, you know, and you'd think, oh, my gosh, that's going to be so awkward for him. But you didn't offer unless he said, could you help me with this? Um in general, how would you describe your working relationship with him? What was your sort of modus operandi and, and, and so forth during the Senate years that you were with him? Mine? Mm-hmm. Um, we always had a very good relationship. Uh, I can't remember one time when he ever said a nasty word to me. Uh, now, he was known, as you know, I'm sure from others... He had a temper, and it would flare up, and he'd just be furious over a speech someone had written that he didn't like and say, this just won't do. Take it back and start over. But he wouldn't tell them what he wanted, what he was looking for. And I think it was because he didn't know. But what he looked at, just that wasn't it. Um, But I never was on the end of that. Um, But one of the reasons, I think, why also was that there would be people on the staff who would go and just walk into his office without letting him know they were coming or, you know, didn't have an appointment or whatever because his day was so busy. Um, And I always knew when to judge if he was in a good mood that's fine. Then I'd take stuff in or I'd go in with questions I had to ask him about. Um, And if he wasn't in a good mood, I didn't go in there. You know, I just learned how to read him, I guess. Um, And I know every time he was ready or was getting ready to go on a trip for the weekend uh, to speak various places, um, I was always, at the last minute, just pounding away on a speech, getting it done, you know, clear up until the time he'd walk out the door because he'd change it so much. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just the way we worked, you know. But so that uh, there were a lot of sort of harried moments at that, and the rest of the staff knew that, you know, I just needed to concentrate, even though I had other people sitting, 
in the same room with me. Um, and every now and then he'd pop his head out the door and I was sitting right there and he'd say, I got to leave in 10 minutes and I'd just shake my hand and keep going, you know. Um, and we always made it. Somehow it always happened. Um, Did he use you as a sounding board or as yes. kind of a counselor? Well, he used me as a sounding board and would ask me for my advice on things um, about the staff, about bonuses at the end of the year, um, or something that would come up and why was somebody missing so much work? Did I know why? And um, oh, just those kinds of things. Um, and especially on invitations at that point, um, when he'd have so many, there were those that I knew were a turndown, and I'd just do it. But then I'd come to those that I thought he had to make the call. And then there were some that were national, inv national invitations that just because of whoever the group was, it was my feeling he should do it or should not do it. But on those, I always wanted him to make the decision. And so that was one of those situations where I had to go in when it was he was in a good mood and ready to go through that kind of thing. Or I might say to him, when he was signing mail one night, I might say, tomorrow we really need to go through invitations. People are beginning to call me now, and they have to have an answer. And he'd say, okay, well, let's do that at 5 o'clock or whatever. But, you know, there came times when I had to say, you know, we really have to get these decisions made. Or Were there times when he'd say, Judy, come in here. Uh, I just can't figure this out. You know, he was really dumbfounded by something or really blocked or, or something and, and seek your advice. Would that happen? Yes, or, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things that I that comes to my mind now that I'm talking with you, Brian, um, when all the demonstrations were going on during the Vietnam War, and the kids, the college kids, you know, came to town, and they wanted to come in and see senators. They were against the war, but they wanted to tell. They were in the hallway, screaming, shouting, sitting all over, and everything, and. It was a bad time, and it was after Kent State and so forth, and there were so many of them. So I had an idea, and I went in, in and I didn't know how I'd be received, but I said, you know, Senator, nobody's talking to these kids, and all they want is for someone to listen to them, and you don't have to agree with them because you don't, but if you could set aside time every afternoon and just spend 15 minutes with them, or 20 minutes, and let as many of them as can come in here and sit on your floor and the chairs and whatever, fill up your office, and just listen to them. They would be so appreciative. And I said, what would you think of trying that? And he said, hmm, that might be a good idea. Nobody else is doing it, are they? And I said, not that I know of. Um, and so he started doing that, and it was just awesome. Um, 
you know, and the word traveled, and they knew that the senator at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, as many as could come sit in the office, he would listen to them, and then and he would interact some too, but mostly just to listen. And that was just a wonderful thing and that they, happened. And they, uh, when the time period was over, they left Yeah, and thanked and him, and they were, mm-hmm. you know, and many of them said, nobody else will even listen to us, you know. So it was a good experiment that did work. Do you do you think it, it altered his thinking in any way? Well, I think he understood more where the younger folks were coming from. Yes, I think, I think that. Um, I don't know that it changed his mind on the war very much, but it certainly made him understand. Um, and I don't know if anybody else has told you. I'm thinking of another thing that was that he took on that um, if someone else has told you about this, then you can just stop me. But um, he was invited to go down to the DAR uh, building, Daughters of the American Revolution building, and give a speech on Vietnam, on the war, Uh, on a Saturday afternoon. Um, And so he worked very hard on that speech. And he took me and another one of the young women who was working there with him down to the speech. Um, And we were just in the audience. Well, we, We went in and there were maybe 10 people um, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited. Maybe as many as 15 or 20 total showed up. And he got up on the stage, and he put his speech aside, and he just talked about how he felt about the war and how disappointed he was that not more people were interested enough to come. Just because they cared, um, and he said, "So instead of giving my speech, what I'm going to do is promise you that in I'm going to say it was two months that in two months from now, I'm going to do this again, and this hall is going to be filled, and we're going to do this the right way." And that's my pledge to you who did come out today, that I will do that two months from now. And I just sunk down in my chair because I knew what that meant. Well, let me tell you, he took that on like a tiger. He, He called the Defense Department and got their help. He enlisted their aid and got other senators involved, Senator Murphy. He got him to get some Hollywood types to come in for it. Um, He got Ross Perot involved because you, you remember Ross Perot had been flying back and forth to Vietnam with packages and things. Anyway, 
And then there was a POWMIA organization of the wives of the POWMIA downtown Washington. And he, we already had, they, some of them had been in touch with our office and were volunteering in our office, even because Mr. Dell cared so much. Um, and so we got them involved. And we had so much going on. And we even found, we went out and found people who would, who didn't have, didn't have the money to fly back for something like that. And Mr. Dole found ways that the Pentagon could take planes and pick people up at certain points and what have you and bring them back, uh, family members. Um, and anyway, I just remember that two months as being probably the hardest two months I ever spent because I, I was in charge of that for the office and dealing with all of those people. It was a fabulous experience, but an awful lot of work, so much detail. Um, getting the color guards, getting the bands, the everything, you know, and getting other senators to come. But everybody knew what he was doing. And he tried to get the president there. The president didn't come, but Vice President Agnew did. Um, and anyway, on the appointed day, it was an overflow crowd. People couldn't even get in. And everybody had worked so hard on that. And it just went off so beautifully. That, you know, that was one of the things I was always proudest of him for. Let's talk about the relationship between his Senate office and the White House um, leading up to his appointment to the RNC. Okay, that's an interesting story. Um, the first good friend I had in Washington when I moved over to Georgetown, I met June Whalen, who was working for Congressman Ford, Jerry Ford, in his Capitol Minority Leader Office. And we became great friends, lived not far from each other. And... By the time, um, I have to jump ahead, um, she by then was working for Rogers Morton, Roger Morton, and on his staff, and he was the chairman of the RNC, and she was over there, and he was about to be made Secretary of the Interior, yes. Um, and he gave up his congressional job, you know, to do that. But she told me, she called me, in fact, on a Sunday right after lunchtime. I can remember this so vividly. Um, and she said, um, the congressman is going to resign as the RNC chairman because he's going to be named. And he said, he, that isn't any that news is not out yet, but he told me that I could go ahead and call you and let you know because he knew that Mr. Dole had an interest 
in becoming head of the RNC at some point if it ever, the opportunity ever arose. So I called him right after that phone call. He was at home, um, and I told him about it, and he said, oh, well, let's saddle up and get going. So um, he talked to Huck Boyd. I'm sure his name's come up. Um, Huck was really his mentor, confidant, supreme on almost everything. Um, And he called and talked to Huck about it because the National Committee members have a lot to say about, you know, who gets in as the chairman. And so Huck helped get that all organized. And, And then it, of course, ran by the White House. And John Mitchell had somebody else in mind for the job from Delaware. And so as it turned out, i got to think a minute so I don't get this wrong. As it turned out, um, he was told, the senator was told, that it was going to be a co-chairmanship. And so he said to me, I'm not doing, there's no part of that, I don't want any part of it. And I said, well, let's sit down and think about that first. He'd already interviewed Ann Armstrong, and she had agreed to come in as the co-chairman handling all the women's issues, you know, at the RNC. And the whole national committee was in town, you know, for this new chairman to arise. And then at the very last minute, we're told there are going to be two of you, the one from Delaware and Mr. Dole. And I said, let's just see if we can work this out. And I said, why don't you call Huck and get a hold of him and talk to him about it, see what he thinks. And so he called him, and Huck said, Bob, you know, you can run rings around the sky, and and you need to do it. Everybody knows you've worked for it. And there are probably a lot of people who already know that you are going to be the chairman. Whether this is a co-chairman or not, you can make an understanding with him. You know, he'll be there day to day, all day, and you won't. And so you can delegate things that you want him to take care of that you don't want to do. And then you do, you be the front person. And so he liked that. And so I said, so you're going to do it? And he said, yeah, I don't like this, but I will. And so he went down to the, we went down to where the RNC members were, and we did have a co-chairmanship, but they did have an understanding of who did what, and, and he was the number one. And so that's how all that happened. Was Ann Armstrong all, another co-chair? Yes. She, and she had been on the Republican National, she was a National Committee member from Texas. She was the committee woman. Um, so it was the three of them. There were three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mr. Dole always, you know, if 
if she had any problems, she always went to Mr. Dole because um, they they were close, and he always took her side and worked things out. And, you know, and he spent enough time at the RNC that um, he knew what was going on, and that's why he made me move over there. <laughs> I really didn't want to go, but but I did. Um, How did he prevail on you? He just said that I, it. I just said I really don't want to do this. You know, I like I'd like to stay here. And he said, well, I want you to take your job here over there with you. And I said, I don't see how I can do that. And he said, no, and, you know, you'll still do all the invitations, all my personal mail. And I said, and when, then what do I do about the RNC things? Um, and so there was another girl who came into the office with me and handled most of the RNC stuff that, that had to come at that level being answered by him. And then there were people who had worked there for years right outside of the chairman's office who knew how to handle all that. And there was a man there named Ab Herman who had been there for, oh my gosh, I don't know how many years. And he was kind of like the AA of an office. And everybody went to Ab with every problem there was. And he, he was just one of these easygoing, always had the answer type of guys. Um, and always knew what was going on. So it all worked out. But it, it was a difficult move for me. Um, and then after I got there, you know, it was all right. I, I enjoyed seeing that side of the party, what, what goes on there. But I, I need to understand here. So you still were doing personal work for him related to his being a senator. Yes. So you, you really, in a sense, had two jobs. Yes. But someone else had, had become his personal secretary. Betty Myers. Mm -hmm. So how did you and Betty sort of work out your working relationship? Well, uh, some of the things that I had been doing just fell to her. Um, to take care of because I couldn't do everything I'd been doing and also the RNC and I, I don't remember how we divided that up but some of that work went to Betty to take care of and I, I never thought about it again you know it was just I think what happened was all the Kansas invitations that's what it was all the Kansas invitations and mail were handled by Betty, and all the invitations that came in for him to do things around the country, um, I handled, which made more sense since he was chairman of the RNC, and, and he was getting a lot more invitations from all over the country then. So that's how we divided that up. But then you had other responsibilities uh, as his secretary... Well, I had chair. to deal with, like, the political section there, the speechwriting section. Lynn Nofziger and Mike Baruti were there doing his speeches at the RNC. Um, and I worked a lot with them. Mostly them and the political section, I would say. 
and there were some advanced people, young guys in the political section who traveled with him or went out ahead of him and, you know, and so I got to know all of them and we, we worked very closely as a team, that group. If you had, if, if the senator hadn't insisted on you going over to the RNC and you had stayed with him in, I guess then it was the Dirksen building, um, do you see yourself having stayed for a very long period of time? I really don't know. I would say probably not, but then I don't know. I loved politics. I loved what I was doing. I really don't know what would have happened. And since I didn't make that decision to stay, you know, a lot of other opportunities opened up that that I've had. And so I, I really can't say what would have happened. Um, let's follow through then on the RNC story. So, so he was there just for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then got word that he was going to be replaced by George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, did you, were you in on his absorbing that information and how he reacted no, to it? No, I was at the Nixon campaign. By then. By then. That's right. So, what prompted your move from the RNC to the Nixon campaign in '72? I guess that would have been. I had just gone through the throes of his divorce, his divorce from Phyllis, and was in on that from the very beginning. He told me about it, and I was sworn to secrecy and all that. Um, and the only other person who knew was Bill Frazier that I mentioned to you. Um, so the two of us knew about it. And I was sort of the liaison between the lawyers and her and all. And it was probably one of the worst times of my life because I was good friends with her. And she was angry and bitter. And it was, it was a very difficult time. But I was still doing my job there, and during that time, Betty and Joanne, I, d I don't even remember why, if they were jealous, I, I can't remember what the problem was, but they just cut me off and wouldn't let me, give me an appointment to come see him when I needed to, or they wouldn't tell me when he was coming to the committee. I just felt totally cut off from the access that I really needed. Um, and so I then got a phone call not long after I, I started feeling this, uh, asking me if I would come down to the um, finance committee side of the re-elect campaign and work for the co-chairman there of the finance committee. And 
I thought that'd be great fun to work on a national campaign. So I said, yes, I would, and I would start in two weeks. And so I wrote him a letter because I tried to call and get in to tell him, and they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me talk to him on the phone. So I just wrote the letter, gave it to his driver, and told him to give it only to, um, told Tom just to give it to the senator. And so that came as a great shock to him. Um, And he tried to get me to stay on, and I I just said, no, this just wasn't going to work. And I had already taken the other job, and... That's about as far as I went. He had some other people who were on the National Committee come and talk to me about coming back with him, and I just said, you know, no, I can't. So That leads to a couple of questions. Um, was, was his office sort of in that period, 70, 71, 72, become fairly politicized or... Were a lot of turf battles going on? A lot of turf battles. As soon as I left, um, because Joanne moved in as the the strong hand and was very much disliked. And there were just an awful lot of political haggling and and bad feelings going on all the time in that office. Um, and I wanted to be removed from that, too, you know. I mean, seeing how I was being treated and knowing what was going on over there. Um, that was one of the big reasons I just decided it... I have a chance to get out of this. I'm I'm going to take it. And I don't know what will happen after the campaign, but we'll see. Did you and Joanne overlap much? Mm-hmm. So before you left... Joanne actually came to work for us on the House side. She had been working for Congressman Harold Cooley. Um, I believe he was from South Carolina, and he was on the Ag Committee. And uh, he had asked Mr. Doe, she needed a job. And uh, so he asked Mr. Doe for a favor if Mr. Doe would hire her. And he did. So she was with us on the House side for a short time before he went to the Senate. Maybe about a year. And there she was just answering mail. She was a wonderful typist and could really put out the work. Really good secretary. Um, and then when she, when we got to the Senate, um, it, it just became a different story with her. Although he relied on her heavily, you know. But I didn't want to put up with that. So so you and she crossed swords a bit while you were still in his personal office. No, she never she never tried anything with me while I was there. 
but I could see what she was doing with other people. And I, I didn't say anything, you know. I, I just didn't feel it was my place to. I you didn't go to the senator and say, no. there's trouble brewing here. No. He already knew some of the stuff she was doing. and um, I figured that's up to him. You know, it's really not up to me. So. Um, talk a little bit about the White House's treatment of Senator Dole. Uh, particularly when he was RNC. Well, we didn't have any trouble with the White House when he was RNC very much. Um, when was he being sent up these packages of speeches to deliver? That was before he went to the RNC. He was just when he was a new senator. Um, Why did you think the White House picked him for that kind of duty? Um, Lynn Nofziger, who had been at the RNC, and who Mr. Dole had known, um, and there were others in the White House staff who, I'm trying to think. Particularly speechwriters and if they wanted, they, you know, from their meetings in the mornings, there were things that they wanted said on the floor. And Mr. Dole and the president were close friends. Um, and so, and they all knew that. And so they would, they called him and asked him the first few times if he would make some remarks on whatever and that they would send something up for him so that he wouldn't have to start from scratch. And then it just became abusive where, you know, a package would just arrive, a brown envelope with a little red tag on it, taped on it, meaning urgent, from the White House. And it would always be something for him to deliver on the floor on some bill that, you know. And there were times when he just said, I refuse, I'm not going to do this. Um, and it... You know, and it didn't work the other way around either. Like when he would try to get through to Haldeman, I'd say 95% of the time Haldeman wouldn't talk to him. And he'd put him on with, with his assistant. And it, it would, they just didn't get along. And so when he'd go down to the White House for meetings that he was called down there for, um, if he had something to take up with the president... He would just ask if he could stay behind, and and that's how he'd handle it. Do you do you think brown packages were arriving with with the red uh, seal on the, to other member other senators to do the same thing, or was was uh, no? I think it was pretty much they well, were relying on Mr. Dole to do it, and and I remember saying to him a few times, you know. Well, how do they look at you? I mean, are you just their gopher to do whatever they want, you know? Why are they doing this to you all the time? You know, it's like 
you're their runner and doing all their work for them. Um, and he, he agreed. I mean, he, it finally came to a point where he just said, you know, don't be sending me that stuff anymore. Well, it's odd to me as you tell it, because on the one hand, he's refusing to do some of this work, mm -hmm. and on the other, they're relying on him to do this. So, Well, it wasn't that often that he refused, but I mean, some of the, the remarks that they would write for him to give, you just couldn't give on the Senate floor. They weren't civil enough. You know, and in those days, things were too civil. You you just didn't say some of the stuff that they wanted him to do. And so he wouldn't do it. So even though he was refusing to do it, uh, they continued to send it, and then he was selected as the RNC chairman to represent the party. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that that mm -hmm. happened that way. But he was very good at going out and giving speeches and meeting with people and, you know, they knew he'd be good for the party as the chairman of the RNC. Right, right. So you went to work for the um, re-election campaign. Right. And then, as you told us last night, you went into the West Wing, right? Well, at first I went to the Commerce Department to work for my boss who had been the co-chair at the Finance Committee. Um, he was an assistant secretary for tourism there. And I was working for him, although not intending to stay in very long, um, when I got a call from Ann Armstrong saying that she was going to the White House as counselor to President Nixon and asked me to come. And so I went in and told my boss about the offer and that I really would like to do it. And I hated to do that to him after only two months. But but he was very good. He said, it may be the only chance you ever get to go to the White House and work. And I wouldn't want anybody to pass that up. Um, and so I went. I actually started in February of 73. Yeah, at the White House. What was and we like? were in the West Wing. It was just another one of those long, long hours. Started, we were at the White House by 7 in the morning. Um, and she had all kinds of various assignments that she handled. Like she, she had the first Office of Women's Programs. Um, she did this Spanish speaking. She took care of that. She spoke fluent Spanish. Um, she was given the bicentennial to run all of that. Um, oh, she was the political liaison to the National Committee members. And you were her personal secretary. Secretary, mm -hmm. right, right. So from that point on, your career path drifted away from Senator Dole until you got involved in the '88 presidential campaign. That's right. Mm -hmm. So pick up the story how that happened. Um. 
He was already running, had an office in 87, which I knew about. We had always been sort of in touch, off and on. Um, and I got back to Washington very frequently working uh, for Mrs. Armstrong in Texas because she chaired um, the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board for Reagan and for Bush. Um, and I, w she also was on other commissions, and so we were in Washington frequently, and some of the people on Mr. Dole's staff that I was friends with, you know, I'd see them, and so um, in 87, I knew for sure I wanted to leave Texas and get back to Washington somehow. And so I thought maybe it'd be fun just to go and work on his campaign. And so I called him in, he was the minority leader at the time. I called and talked to him and got and told him when I was going to be in Washington and uh, for this PIFIAB meeting and asked if I could come up and see him and talk to him. And he said, sure, you know. And so um, one afternoon I went up and we spent three hours talking about, I said I was interested in working on the campaign. And he said, you are? I never even thought about that, you know, didn't have any idea. Um, so we talked about it. And he told me, like, who all was at the campaign, and um, and I asked him how much his Senate staff and the leader staff and all were involved in it, and he said, they really aren't. We have to keep all this separate. And, and so then um, he told me to go talk to Bill Lacey, and I did. And I was not at all impressed, but nevertheless, Senator then told Bill to, Bill wanted me to fill out all kinds of forms and everything. And I said, to, Mr. Dole had already said to me when I left that day after talking to him, I want you to come, just make your own arrangements and come as soon as you can. And so then he called Bill Lacey and told him, and Bill then sent me all these forms to fill out. And I, I can't remember exactly how it all happened, but I, I think I called Bob Ellsworth, and he said, you don't have to fill any of that out. The senator just wants you here. Just, just get here. And so about a week, 10 days went by, and I was still in Texas, and I, Bill, Bill had been told to call me and give me an offer and so forth, and I'd never heard from him. So the senator finally called me in about 10 days and wanted to know if I'd talked to Lacey, and I said, no, he's never called me. And he said, um, well, I'll talk to him. Don't worry about it. Just come. And so, you know, it, it was kind of an up in the air. What am I going to do? What am I going to get paid? Uh, 
But at any rate, then, and Dave Owen was traveling with him a lot then. And I know that it was on a Sunday, maybe another week later, they were in Puerto Rico. And they called me and wanted to know if I had talked to anybody about anything concrete. And I said, no, nobody had been in touch. And so Mr. Dill said, well, just get on up here. And he said, you can name your price. I don't care what it is. It's yours. Um, And I need somebody to handle the schedule in advance. He said, I've got some young people doing it now. But he said, I just need you to come and, and oversee all that. So I told Mrs. Armstrong that I was going to go back and do the campaign. And I went on up there in June, I guess, of 87. And so that's how I got to the campaign. And you remained in charge of scheduling through, through the duration. Mm-hmm. And you saw a fair amount of churn and turnover in that campaign uh, in terms of its management. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, well, the turnover was from Bill Lacey being the day-to-day campaign manager, which I just didn't... It To me, it just didn't seem like we were going anywhere. Um And, in fact, there were too many detrimental things. So I just went up to see Mr. Dole in the Senate and told him I really thought he needed somebody who was wiser and more political and would carry a bigger stick, um, you know, to run the day-to-day operations. And he'd been hearing that from other people down there. And so he asked me, who do you have in mind? And I said, I don't know. I haven't thought a whole lot about it. But I, it, And I said, I don't know. Someone like a Bill Brock who's been RNC chairman who knows the ropes that way and you've served with him in the House and the Senate, so you know him. Uh, but somebody like that that you feel comfortable with. Um And he said, well, let me mull over this Bill Brock idea. And and then he settled on that and called Brock to see if he could come talk to him. And he had just had eye surgery and was laid up with that. Um, But he said, come on over on Sunday afternoon. And so Mr. Doe and Mari Mossing... And I think Kim Wells and I went with him, and we talked to him about doing this. And he was interested because he loved politics. And but it, he said he needed a little time to think it through and, you know, make his own arrangements. Um, but then he quickly said yes, he'd do it. And so. And as I recall, his tenure was a little bit controversial too or am I wrong about that well there were a number of people not at a high level but 
a number of people who really liked Bill Lacey. And so there was, you know, that conflict. Um, because Bill was given a totally different job. of um, He was just looking at demographics and working with the pollster and, and so forth after that. And Bill Brock brought in some of his own folks to work with him. And I guess it was well, Bill Brock traveled with him quite a bit off and on, just to see how everything was going, you know, how things were shaping up. Um, and he was there until the end. I mean, Mr. Dole sometimes would get off the range and he would, he'd not want to go where we wanted him to go, you know, and we were sending him places for reasons. <laughs> um, and instead, like for instance, um, in South Carolina, he, Strom Thurmond was backing him and helping him out. And he was like, he wanted to go back in there like three times in a week, which, you know, and I said to him, Mr. Dell, that doesn't make any sense. And he said, well, now, wait a minute, we've got something going here. And I said, I don't know what, you know, there are too many other places you need to be with all these primaries and all. Um, and so there were problems with that. It was like he was deciding himself <clears throat> where he was going to go and where he wanted to go. Um, and then he'd get stuck because he didn't know who to approach to put something on, an event or anything. He was just kind of flying around with an atlas. <laughs> I don't know. Um had you, uh, did this surprise you? Well, yes and no. I mean, I really thought in a campaign situation that he would have listened more to people in the headquarters than he was. Uh, but I also knew him well enough to know that he himself was such a good politician that he always thought he knew best. And so I could see both sides there, you know, I knew it. But it really made the job very hard. And and then he'd take some people on the plane with him who weren't even involved in the campaign at all. And they'd fly all over the place and... And he'd call me on the phone and want me to do this or that. And I'd say, nope, you're not even supposed to be in the state of Texas. You know, you're, he's running against Bush. You're not even supposed to be there. Well, call so-and-so. Well, then he got to the point where, since I would tell him no, he'd have Mike Glasner call me and ask me for names. And I... I'd say, Mike, you're not supposed to be down there. And he said, well, he wants you <laughs> to call Jimmy Allison. And I said, Jimmy Allison died several years ago. 
Jimmy Ellison had worked for George H.W. Bush on the Hill. And he said, um, and I could hear him talking to Mr. Dillon, he said, well, call his wife then. And I said, Mike, his wife is remarried. I don't even know how to get a hold of her. She wouldn't know me from Adam like Jimmy would. And I said, just forget this. I am not going to do it. You know, you're not supposed to be in Texas. You went there on your own. Figure it out. And that was the end of the conversation. So either later that day or the next day, Mr. Dole called me and he said, Now, Judy, listen. I don't want you and you and I getting crosswise with each other because we may be the only two left in this campaign in another day or so. And I said, oh, Mr. Dole, come on. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I just said, look, we're only doing this for we have reasons and we can tell you why. You know, and I said, and I know you're a great politician and you think you know what to do. But you can't step back from the big picture and look at it and see what needs doing. And you have to depend on people to help you do that. So I guess we went on from there to Chicago and we were running out of money. Uh And we we did go to Chicago, and a lot of the staff went out there. And that was just about the last hurrah. He went on and and traveled to a couple more states before he gave it up. So this was after uh, Iowa and in mm-hmm. New Hampshire, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, because he won Iowa, and then lost big in New Hampshire. And you were telling us you you were spent some time in New Hampshire. Did you also spend time in Iowa? Uh, um, no, I went out there one time, only because I can't remember what these what the situation was. He was so tired and exhausted, he needed to get off the road. I knew that. Because his temper was flaring and everything was just really bad. And so I went to Mr. Brock and said, I really think you need to go out to Iowa and be out there. This is what's happening. And Brock knew it. Um... And he said, will you go along? And I said, sure. And he said, well, let's go tomorrow. So that happened to be a Saturday. And we didn't tell him we were coming. But we got on a plane and flew out to Iowa. And Mr. Dole was sick. He had um, a horrible cold. He couldn't even speak. And Brock went down to see him. And told him that he he and I had flown out um, to talk to him and let him know that 
you know, he just couldn't run himself into the ground, that he had to take some time off and so forth. And so Brock came back and said, he's, he's sound asleep, he's gone back to bed, and we can see him in the morning. And I said, no, I've served my purpose. He knows why I came, which, which meant he knew I came because I was really concerned about him and about what was going on, and that if I were going to come all that way, that, you know, he already had my message. And so I got on a plane the next morning and flew back to Washington. I didn't even see him. But my whole purpose was just to let him know that I really cared and that I was willing to go that far and face him if I need, you know, if he wanted to. So he goes ahead and wins in, in Iowa and and then turned the focus back on to New Hampshire. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if it... I don't know in the elections now if you can only spend so many days in a state and then you have to get out or so many hours. I don't know that. But back in in 88... You could only be in a state for, I don't remember, 24 or 48 hours, and then you had to get out of that state and go somewhere else. It was it was FEC rules. And so it meant, that made it very difficult, you know, because Iowa, campaigning there means you've got to go to every single county, and that's the way we did it, and then come back around and do it again. And you just keep doing that. So when you'd have to get out of there, in case you'd be reported and fined, um, then he'd go into New Hampshire and do some events, and maybe down to South Carolina because that was coming up. Um, but you couldn't stay in one state like they're doing now. You know, so, some of they they must not have that rule anymore because I've seen candidates where they've moved to the state. Um, so what was it like going up to New Hampshire? And what was the primary I like? wasn't there for the very end of it when the, the staff that went up for the primary, he wanted me to stay behind so that there was someone at the headquarters, you know, that he could talk to. And that was fine with me. There were a lot of people up there doing things. Um, and so I wasn't there then. I was up there... Um, prior to um, the primary meeting with Redmond and Tom Rath and his folks, you know, on again, on strategy and where he needed to go, where which speeches he needed to give and where and all that kind of thing. Um, but I didn't go up when he was there for the last several days before. One of the things that... Uh, we did was we got Don Rumsfeld to agree to endorse him, and we got a plane to fly him up to New Hampshire to do that. And Gene Kirkpatrick, and you know, we were doing things like that um, back at the headquarters. But it was it was probably one of the biggest blows he ever had was to lose New Hampshire. 
Did he ever say that to you? I, I can't recall that he ever said that to me. But I knew that it was just from what I was hearing from the folks who were up there with him. Um, and I think it was about that time There was an interview um, with him, and the last question was, do you have anything else you want to say? And he said, yes, he wanted Bush to stop lying about his record. And I was at the headquarters. We were all watching that. Maybe it was a debate. I don't uh, recall. Were, the two of them were appearing, I think, on Nightline. On Nightline. And uh, I put on my coat and walked out the door, and I knew that was the end of the campaign. I never said that to him, but I knew it was. I mean, you 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 can't afford to do that on national TV. Where did that? This will sound like a weird question, but where did that comment come from? I mean, what what part of the Dole makeup was that coming out of? Anger. That temper that flared. I mean, I've had a lot of people tell me that that doesn't happen anymore nearly as often, that he's mellowed a lot. But, it, but you know, he used to just go off like that. And um, you really had to know how to handle that or... You, you just didn't know what else to do, you know. So did you have any other uh, working relationship with Bob Dole since the 88 campaign? No, not not working. Um, I was invited to come up when he left the Senate, when he ran in 96, and hear his farewell speech and I saw him that day and have a wonderful picture of when he and Elizabeth came down the Capitol steps and and there were a bunch of us there and a lot of his Senate colleagues and there's a wonderful picture I have of his you know stopping and giving me a hug um And then we've just stayed in touch over time. Like, I always get Christmas gifts, um, and I see him at various things, you know. But Did he try to <clears throat> involve you in the 96 campaign? No. And you weren't tempted? No, not at all. Why not? Um, I guess basically because I really didn't think anybody could beat Clinton. At that point in time. Um, and I really had done enough national campaigns. I also had done the Reagan campaign. And Nixon, Ford, Reagan. 
and I I just wasn't up for another one, and my job was solid, and I probably would have not been able to come back to it. You know, they'd have had to hire somebody else to do it, and I liked what I was doing. And just for the record, you were working at that time for? At CSIS, and I was handling all the membership groups and all their meetings. Um, just, <clears throat> we're almost done, I think, um, although if there's anything else you want to say, I, I certainly want to give you that opportunity. Um, just fill me in a little bit on Phyllis. You mean what kind of person she was? Mm-hmm. And, and Yeah, and being around her and so forth. Phyllis really did not like politics. It just wasn't in her. Um, she would go to things where it was really necessary for her to go, but she didn't like it. It just wasn't her bag. She loved art and antiquing and um, other things. I always liked her. She and I were friends. We, She was very good to me. And Robin, you know, was young when I first met her. And I, I, Robin and I have become good friends. Um, Phyllis, how would I describe her? She was... Not vivacious, effervescent, and real outgoing like Elizabeth is. Kind of opposites. Um, Phyllis had quite a few friends, and she was very active in the Senate Wives Club. She, she did do a lot with them. But that's the only thing I can think of that she did, really, politically. Once in a while, when people would be in town that she knew, she would bring them up for lunch and so forth. But um, it just wasn't in the cards for her. I mean, it wasn't what she really liked, and she never grew to like it. But you said her her disappointment at the divorce was pretty profound, Um why why was it do you think i just think she never expected that he would get a divorce and i have to say that i never thought he would either i knew things weren't well going well but just knowing him i di- i just didn't think he would do that the way he had been brought up and everything. But nevertheless, um, I I think a lot of it was she was scared. She didn't know what in the world she was going to do next. Where would she go? What would she do? Um, And... And what she did do, of course, was move out to Kansas, and she married um, 
a supporter of Mr. Dold's. Um, he, they lived in a small town, and she had an antique shop. And then he died, and during the 88 campaign, she went back uh, for her whatever class reunion and the fellow that she had gone with in high school um, was there and they started seeing each other and they married and they're still married but um, she now has dementia and Robin has told me that it's just a very sad thing. Um, right. And I haven't seen her in a long time. Um, do you think that uh, Dole uh, had, was, was more at ease interrelating with women? Do you think there were any gender differences there? Or, or no? I think he had an easier time relating to women, working with women. But then there were some men that he really relied on and worked very well with too. But, but I mean, those are select individuals, you know. I can almost name them. Um, but it sounds like you had access to his ear in a kind of privileged way that not many other people did. Right. While I was there, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Looking back, uh, sitting in your classroom in Kansas City, <laughs> wondering whether you're going to get this letter or some kind of contact from Washington, would you say uh, you'd do it all over again? Oh, yes, I would. I mean, I've had a great career professionally. The only thing I miss is that I don't have a family. You know, I would love to have been married and have children. And as I look back on it, you know, um, even though I dated people, I never... I never could count on being able to carry through with plans, let's put it that way, because you never knew from one day to the next what your hours were going to be. So, in a way, politics, kind if, if you're at that level in politics, it sort of becomes your whole life. And as I look back on it, that's not a good thing. And yet, on the other hand, I really enjoyed all the things I did and the things I got to do because of it. I would uh, imagine that, uh, how can I put this, you would have been a very hot date. (laughs) Well, there were some fellows that came along that, you know, I really, really fell in love with. And why I never just got out of the politics and got married, 
I don't know. Um, that's something I wonder myself. You know, I don't know why. I can't answer that. Well, a lot of people say politics is pretty seductive. It is. It is. And I, as I say, I think it depends on the position you have because a lot of people can leave a political office and it, you know, it's not hard for them at all. But I think it depends on what your job is. Right. And if you're at a high level, um, you're just on call all the time. So. You, of course, are not unique in that aspect. There were oh, other, no. Right. Not at all. I wonder if uh, it ever occurs to Bob Dole that with the hours he extracted from you and whatnot that uh, he, a lot of people made a lot of sacrifices for him. I don't know. Um, could we stop for a moment? Mm-hmm. How do you... Um, think Bob Dole will be remembered in as time goes on? I think he will be remembered as a great statesman. He was so good as minority leader at bringing people together and getting the most out of the Republicans he had to work with. And I think they respected him greatly from all I've heard and his ability to bring various viewpoints to the table, let everybody have their say, but then try to come to some conclusion and he had a real facility for doing that. Um, and I know he's been greatly missed in the Senate. But I also think he'll be remembered as a man who could have felt sorry for himself, lived in self-pity, and not pulled himself up and had the ambition and the drive to go ahead and make what he could of his life Um, and to sit down and figure out what that might be and then to go for it. And... He was always someone, no matter when he got beaten down, it might take a little bit, but I would always say to other people, don't worry, he's going to be fine. He Just give him time. He'll work it through himself. And then he'll be back up, and you'll know when he's all right again. Um, because I've seen that happen over and over and over with him. And I find that pretty amazing. Um, and so I, I think he's really an amazing man, one of the most amazing people I've ever met. 
And I just have the greatest of admiration for him, for what he's been able to do with his life. And still doing it, you know. Very good. Okay. Are we done? I think so. Thank Thank you, you, Brian. Thank you.